the challenge, the opportunity to connect. The 1960s, a time of imagination and change, a time of anger and fear. The 1960s, a program called Challenge. Good evening, ladies and gentlemen. Looked at our connections, our divisions, through the lens of faith. Nearly 60 years later, during these challenging times, we'll take a new look at our divisions, our connections, in a new program called Challenge 2.0. They have spent decades emerging from the nightmare of the Holocaust. Human-engineered butchery that claimed the lives of six million Jews, neighbors, friends, family. After rebuilding their lives from the Nazi genocide of World War II, survivors are now being confronted by a new generation of white nationalists who either claim the Holocaust never happened or that it didn't go far enough. In this episode of Challenge 2.0, we hear the stories of two such survivors and how they're confronting the latest pandemic of hate. Lorene Nussbaum's childhood was stolen at just five years of age. The year Adolf Hitler seized power in Germany. Her birthplace of Frankfurt, Germany became unsafe for Jews. Nine decades later, these scenes remain painful memories. What I, what I witnessed was the beginning of Nazism in the winter of 1933. That was when I was five, I was still in kindergarten. And uh, what we noticed was the endless marches of brown shirts, kind of mustard colored, not very pretty, marching around the streets. I lived close to a rather busy intersection and they were marching in huge, huge columns, uh, singing their nefarious songs. So from that moment on, we felt very much uh, marginalized and it was aggravated for myself by the fact that a girl with whom I had walked to school refused to walk with me to school because I was Jewish and she was not obviously, so Elfriede wouldn't walk to school with me anymore. The other thing I noticed on my way to school was a, a newspaper stand, a kiosk, uh, where they sold the Sturmer, which was I think a weekly, I'm pretty sure, um, and it had the most god-awful caricatures of Jews on the front page. And I remember how horrified I was. So this was all uh, while I went to school in third grade. So I was seven. Lorraine's family realized it was time to leave their home. Amsterdam seemed to offer safety. The experience of Jewish families there was very different than those in Germany. Carla Pepperzak. I don't think we quite understood. I definitely, I wasn't, what really had happened in Germany. Uh, we felt that uh, a rather liberal society in the Netherlands at the time, and we knew there were Dutch Nazis, but uh, we didn't hear much about them. And, you know, I had no, definitely no contact with any of those. Mm -hmm. And so uh, I cannot say that I, there was anti-Semitism, which I personally found before the war. But in May of 1940, the Nazis invaded the Netherlands. German forces conquered the country in just five days. Of course, we were scared to death. I remember that uh, when they first came into the city and we, you know, it was just awful. It's just, um, and we had no idea what would happen 
they installed almost immediately an, uh, an SS officer as head of the government, but they said it would follow the Dutch uh, laws and they would not do anything against the Jewish people. And of course that lasted a couple of months. And... The stories of Carla and Lorraine at first different began to converge. These were good years, I'm speaking of 37, 38, uh, 39 till the war started. Well, already a little before that time, my father had a feeling that maybe we were not quite as safe as, I, as we had thought we would be. So he mm -hmm. tried to get uh, papers and visa to take the family to Paraguay, but that was too late. Nazi propaganda was amazing. So people who were not anti-Semitic, so some, you know, did become anti-Semitic, but also my own experience was, I was doing my, but actually my final exams when I, when the invasion took place in May 1940. So I changed over to um, a private college. And that was, I could, because of that, uh, because, uh, uh, you know, in late 41, beginning 42, all Jewish kids and young people were not allowed in schools anymore. Mm -hmm. And so um, I could continue studying there because it was a private school. Both girls witnessed the ultimate despair of other Jews. We were quite aware of what happened in Germany after Kristallnacht in uh, mm -hmm. November of 1938 because one of my father's friends, really his closest friend, had been uh, apprehended and the family were lucky enough to leave Germany via Amsterdam. So mm -hmm. we knew from Carla, the friend, uh, uh, how terrible things were. No, we had quite a few who committed suicide. And uh, I knew neighbors behind us who lived behind us and uh, they did, my husband and wife committed suicide. So they were very desperate. And both Lorraine and Carla, for example, knew Anne Frank, who would come to be known for the diary published after her death in Auschwitz. I really met um, her sister first uh, uh, at Temple. There was a reformed Temple. So Margot and I were in the same Hebrew class. Anne was about six years older. I was at the home and um, you know, only several times. They were not the only ones. There were so many people. There was one after another who they disappeared. And we did not know if they had been taken or if they had gone into hiding or if they had been shot, you know. Uh, and I found out, of course, later that they were went into hiding and were taken away again. Well, what happened with them was what happened to most of our Jewish friends and, and, and acquaintances. And Margot, the older one, <clears throat> got a call to report for labor on July the 5th of 1942. My sister, my older sister got the same call, by the way. I was too young, Anne was too young. And uh, Frank disappeared the next day. And they sort of made it believe, and we believed it, because Mr. Frank had been a lieutenant in the German army during World War I that maybe he had found a friend because not all Germans were Nazis. They mm -hmm. were definitely people who were anti-Nazi or at least non-Nazi. And so maybe somebody helped them. And so that's what we hoped. We had no idea they were hiding in Amsterdam. It's suspected that an employee of the Frank family business betrayed them. 
Lorraine's family and Carla's family narrowly escaped the fate of young Anne Frank and her sister Margot. When uh, all the Jews in the Netherlands had to register, we first didn't think uh, anything about it. People were law-abiding, they registered, but pretty soon it became clear that uh, the registration was in order to uh, do us harm, to put it mildly. But there was one measure after the other we couldn't do. We couldn't uh, write public transportation. We, we couldn't, uh, of course, we had to leave our schools and go again to Jewish schools. And uh, there was one thing after the other. Lorraine's mother devised a strategy described in her book, Shedding Our Stars, that ironically depended upon the assistance of a German official and attorney. And so at that point, my parents had heard that there was this man walking right under the Reichskommissar in The Hague. His name was Hans Kallmeier, who was the person to adjudicate cases where a family claimed that although they had registered, they were not really quite as Jewish as the papers read. My mother's mother was not Jewish. And so my mother and my grandmother concocted a story which made it appear as if, as if my mother's father also had not been Jewish. And so we found a good Dutch lawyer who uh, prepared the papers and took them to The Hague and claiming that my mother was not Jewish. And um, after having worn the yellow star from May of 1942 mm -hmm. till January of 1943, we were informed that uh, Henceforth, my mother was considered not to be Jewish, and my two sisters and I were half Jewish, so the four of us could take off the yellow star, and my father was hence, uh, from henceforth a partner in a privileged mixed marriage. Mm -hmm. so that's how I escaped, and my family escaped being deported. And then my father managed to an attorney, uh, and actually it's a German attorney. There is a book written about him. Uh, who changed, who, who managed to change the IDs. Uh, they said, we, you know, that we were not Jewish or something like that. Okay. And then we got a new ID and my ID had no J. And because of that, I had more, much more freedom uh, because slowly and surely they forbid the Jewish people to go on a streetcar or on a bus or on the trains. Many stores were not allowed to, to accept Jewish people. It took about a year to get this done. Kallmeyer is credited with saving 3,700 lives, classifying them as non-Jews, despite intense scrutiny of his Nazi superiors. He was haunted. He couldn't save more. Carla Pepperzak saved 40 additional lives. As detailed in her memoir, Keys of My Life, Carla joined the Dutch resistance as a college student. Danger was a daily experience. I learned, I, I learned how to make those false IDs. And the first couple I had was my uncle and his wife, and he had two little children. Not only that they got into hiding, I then also got them new IDs. The false IDs, were many of them were printed in England, and they would uh, at night uh, drop them by small airplanes, uh, in a certain spot and they would be picked up. And, and anyhow, I got those false IDs and I got a little machine to make a thumbprint because they had a thumbprint and the uh, little seal which came with it. And I learned how to make um, false IDs and 
to people who were in hiding. I could give them a false ID. Uh, I was uh, being uh, interrogated actually at, at home by the place where I was living. And I uh, normally don't, I'm not a real flirt, but I flirted with the fellows. And they, uh, I guess they were flattered and they let me, they said, it's okay. And they, when they were leaving, I had to leave too. And I had my little suitcase where I put in all the false IDs and the um, little machine. And I was, you know, taking that down with me. And, and one of them said, okay, let me carry that for you. So he carried that for me. I was very fortunate that they didn't open it and didn't ask any more questions. So I will not be sitting here. Despite incredible successes, Carla remains troubled by those she couldn't save. Quite a few of my relatives were taken away and, and were killed. I t one of them, of course, I helped to go into hiding and I tried to not come, but they thought they had other arrangements and they were taken, you know, they were betrayed and also. So that, that was terrible. And it's still terrible. I still think of them, you know, quite a bit because we, as a family, um, I mean, as an extended family, we were very close and I knew them very well. And so that was, and of course, a lot of my friends disappeared too. Ironically, liberation at the end of World War II also erased hope, replacing it with a certainty of immense personal losses. Uh, after the war, when Otto Frank came back and he was overjoyed to see that my family was still intact, living in the same apartment where he had last seen us uh, in 1942. And he came with a folder with uh, papers written by Anne, telling us that Anne had kept a diary and that he was thinking of fulfilling her wish and publishing the diary mm -hmm. and what did my parents think of it. He didn't ask me because I was only 17, you know, you don't ask a 17 year old. So uh, in my parents, like other friends, my parents were definitely not the only ones that of course you want to publish it. But uh, the liberation was of course exhilarating, there's no mm -hmm. doubt about it. We, my uh, then boyfriend Rudy and I rode on a Canadian tank clear across the city. That was very, very joyful. But almost the next day, uh, as the news came about uh, um, extermination camps, because we knew about concentration camps, but we mm -hmm. did not know about the gas chambers. And when we realized that uh, none of our friends and relatives, uh, Rudy's parents, my aunts, uh, all my classmates from the Jewish school, that they would not come back. That was really a very, uh, well, this was the pits really, that was terrible. Because during the war, whatever we suffered like hunger and uh, deprivation, we had hope. But now the hope was taken away. People would not come back. And uh, that was very, very hard to say, very difficult. And after the war, we did not know if they would come back or where they were. And so it took several months before we knew if somebody had been killed or, you know, most of them who did not come back, of course. Family photos, historical artifacts, all serving as painful reminders of those lost. The memories are always there and it is not easy, let's say. It has become easier because I have done a lot of talking now. Mm -hmm. But photographs is also difficult 
I can't see a movie or a stage play. I, I can read about it, but I don't want, you know, I, I have Schindler's List and the other day I said, well, I turn it on again. I last last five minutes and I, I don't want it. Out of the 108,000, 5,000 came back, less than 5%, which makes the Netherlands by far the most devastating country mm-hmm. of the Western ones, excluding Poland, which was Eastern Europe. And there's a good reason for that. And that has to do uh, with the fact that the Dutch had a super registry. We were all registered so ex- excellently that there was no daylight. <laughs> you know, it was, we were pinned down. And, and that's exactly why the Dutch are still struggling with their self-image of what happened during World War II. Love of family and by family underscored by heirlooms spanning generations, have aided healing. Now, in reading your book, uh, it tells the story of a quilt that your daughter made for you. And she embroidered, as I understand, four words uh, around it. Tell us what those words were. And are those messages you pass on to groups? Well, what she did was I wrote my doctoral dissertation about the female figures in the work of Bertolt Brecht. People might know the name in connection with the symphony opera. And uh, she asked me very innocently, what were those qualities of people like Mother Courage? Wonderful. <laughs> so it's my, the center is my mother figure. Can you see it? Resourceful, robust, resilient, practical. You have forwarded a special piece of jewelry to your children and your grandchildren. Can you tell us a little bit about that and the special occasions that they bring that out and what what that brings up for you? My uncle and aunt and their son were taken away and he had a, my uncle had a safe deposit box in Switzerland actually. This is so interesting because, you know, they died in the Holocaust, but there was some some jewelry and, and one of the things was this star, this was actually my aunt's star. And um, it was not the star of Dave's, it's, you know, my mother got that. And so when she passed away, I got it. And I decided, I feel that, you know, that way the family keeps in contact. I have nine granddaughters and two grandsons. That everyone who gets married should wear this star at the wedding. The idea of that is that hopefully that once I die, it goes to my daughter, Marion, and um, that if one of the descendants, a girl who marries, will wear that star. And that way the family can keep in contact, so. A sense of responsibility to family and friends, past and present, has provided an enduring sense of mission. It took me many, many years. And then, uh, then Marion lived in Spokane and her daughter, my granddaughter, she asked me if I wanted to talk in her school sort of a gradual thing and it just sort of happened. When I started talking, I realized very much how important it was to talk about this. For the longest time, we did not really want, you know, we wanted to go on with life and and, and try to forget. And it turned out it's almost impossible to forget. Mm -hmm. Not almost, it's just impossible to forget. And then realizing it's much better that people get to know what happens. So that's so I feel that it's the 
it's very important for me to talk about it simply. I think people should know that it really happened because so many people still doubt us. When he came to this country, uh, we did uh, and, and became citizens in the year 1963. And ever since we have been active in uh, uh, all our peace uh, concerns, I have been and still am an active member of Women's International League for Peace and Freedom. Mm -hmm. uh, my husband used his knowledge to uh, get in touch with people downwind from the Hanford uh, side, people who suffered from radiation illness and uh, other really, uh, bad effects of uh, radiation. So that was his strength and I supported him in that. So yes, we have been trying to be active citizens, uh, which is all a person can do, I'm afraid. The determination of both women has been unexpectedly intensified, not by events in Europe, but here in the United States, including the Pacific Northwest. I think it's awful. And actually, uh, <laughs> I uh, just two weeks or three weeks ago, uh, our temple here in uh, Spokane was defaced by a neo-Nazi. And I actually suggested to the rabbi that I would want to talk to the man because I thought that he doesn't believe that the Holocaust happened. So I think education is so terribly important. I'm willing to talk to the man just to try to, uh, to make him understand that things do happen and that you know, people should not hate other people. I, the hate is so terrible. Well, there was this feeling uh, in, this, in the United States this could never happen here because we are a democracy uh, and uh, we are much more enlightened than the, the Germans. I had to revise that for many, many decades. I just couldn't understand how my parents who were voting citizens in Germany allowed Hitler to come to power. Why didn't they protest? Why didn't they stand up? Well, now I live in the greatest democracy of the world and look what kind of a situation we have gotten ourselves in with what happened this last January 6th. Uh, unfortunately, it can happen here too. And uh, that's very uh, disconcerting <laughs> to put it mildly, you know. Well, the, the, the main thing of it is that they understand what happened and that it will never happen again. And the, the, the interesting thing is for what, what I never can understand that that's happened in Germany. Germany at the time was the highest educated and cultural country in the world, I think. And that, uh, that propaganda, what propaganda can do to people's views. And I'm always sort of comparing it now with the social media, but people believe anything they read. And that they have to be aware that, you know, that things can happen and not to be influenced by that. If you uh, were to talk to somebody that is very concerned about the presence of white supremacists, white nationalists, neo-Nazis in the United States, what would you tell them? And if you did encounter, say, that uh, person that was responsible for defacing the synagogue, what would you tell him? To answer the last question first, I, I would tell him that the Holocaust really happened and I would kind of show him pictures of my family and all that, what happened. And I will tell them that, you know, 
people are people, and you know, even if they're not the same, or exactly the same, that to respect each other. And, and the the fellow I would explain about about the Holocaust. I don't know if they would he would accept. It. And to other people, the same thing that you know, the uh, to kill six million people is, is something one, nobody can understand how many that is. It's unbelievable. And, and the only way to stop that is to educate yourself and to, like I said, start respecting people. And so that would be my answer. All we can do is speak up, do our best, be uh, cognizant of uh, the bad things within us. Because uh, uh, when people say, this is not us, this is not American, well, you know, they were very culturally uh, educated Germans and see what happened there. We have no, uh, we don't have tips on being better than anybody else. We have to work just as hard on being reasonable and compassionate as everybody else. We do not, uh, this idea of exception, American exceptionalism, I think is very dangerous. Exactly what the Germans said, they felt exceptional. They had a little ditty about it, that, that it's a German mind that will bring the, the world together. <laughs> Just be humble and do your best, and that's about all. It's not much. I'm not terribly hopeful, but it's all we can do. Two words, just two, summarize their work and their call to each of us. That is my main, my main point of never again. Next week, we'll continue this discussion with a panel including an historian, a survivor, and a social activist. Please join us next week here on Challenge 2.0. If you've enjoyed this program, found our conversations to be informative, entertaining, and thought-provoking, and the vision inspiring of people from different backgrounds who can disagree without being disagreeable, perhaps you might consider supporting our program with a contribution. Your support will not only help our program continue, it will also support the broader efforts of Paths to Understanding, our supporting parent nonprofit organization. If you've enjoyed this program, please give us five stars and leave a review. If you can also tell one friend about the show, that would be great. You can find us on social media at Facebook, YouTube, Instagram, and Twitter. You can find out more and financially support the show at pathstounderstanding.org. The program is hosted by executive producer Jeff Renner, produced by Tom Butterworth and John Sharifi. Cameras and audio by Rich McAdams, Tom Butterworth, and Dean Cuccia. Ian Olson is the production assistant.